It's a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your interest in this subject. And hopefully we'll be able to say some things from God's Word that will both educate us and encourage us to defend the very teachings that we talked about last night. You may remember that last night was an examination of what does God's Word say about homosexuality. What has God decreed? What has God informed us of in His inspired Word? And we've established that uh, homosexuality is a sin. It is not to be practiced, that those who practice such will not inherit the kingdom of God. But we want to move ahead from that and talk about this subject. How does a Christian defend God's teachings on homosexuality in an increasingly tolerant age? And I want to emphasize that last part because you know we live in an increasingly tolerant age. We live in an age that has changed quite a bit in a, in a short amount of time. I can remember growing up that this subject was not talked about that often. Uh, you didn't see people on television uh, flaunting the lifestyle. You certainly didn't see any laws that would suggest that a man and a man could marry or a woman and a woman could marry. And yet you know that things have drastically changed in 2014. As I stand before you now, in the United States of America, 19 of the 50 states allow gay marriage and the District of Columbia. 16 countries, soon to be 17, allow gay marriage. There are all kinds of laws on the books that are trying to outlaw what is deemed discrimination against gender identity, against homosexuality, against sexual orientation. And so I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I did want to emphasize to you just how different things are today and how much more challenging it is to defend God's teachings on this subject today than it may have been 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. One of the things that I remember very vividly in law school, it was about 1996, and the state of Hawaii, had issued a decision, the Supreme Court of the state of Hawaii issued a decision that said that under the Hawaii Constitution, it was unconstitutional to deny a man the right to marry another man or to deny a woman the right to marry another woman. Why? Because that violated the Equal Protection Clause. In other words, you'll allow a man to marry a woman but you won't allow a man to marry another man. Well, that's discriminating on the basis of gender. And, of course, we all know you're not supposed to discriminate on the basis of gender. And, therefore, we can no longer do that. And homosexual marriage is here to stay. That was an alarming development in society. I don't know if you remember that time, if you're old enough to have witnessed that. But it was all over the news. It was all over the newspapers. It was on the cable news channels. And here's the concern. You say, well, why did people care about it? Why? It should have been limited to people in Hawaii. Why? I'm in Tennessee. I'm in Alabama. I'm in Mississippi. Why do I care what those folks do over there in Hawaii? Well, there's this thing in the United States Constitution called the Full Faith and Credit Clause. And whether you know it, I know you understand its repercussions because let me give you a couple examples and you'll shake your head and say, well, that's why that's the way it is. Jacqueline and I, my wife, got married in the state of Georgia. Now that's where the marriage ceremony took place. And we got a license to be married from the state of Georgia. Now I don't live in the state of Georgia, 
And my wife doesn't live in the state of Georgia. We live in the state of Alabama. And we've been there quite some time, about 15 years. But you know what? The sheriff has never come to my house and said, now you know that it's not legal for you to be over here acting like a married couple because you're only married in the state of Georgia. You can't be married in Alabama. That's not the law. Why? Because the full faith and credit clause says that every state in the union has to give full faith and credit to the acts of another state. So we all get married in one state, and every other state in the union has to recognize that. So no matter where we move, we are married because the full faith and credit clause. But let me give you another one. You've got a driver's license, many of you do. And you got that driver's license in a particular state. So let's say you got that driver's license in the state of Tennessee, but you drove down to New Orleans and you're in Louisiana. And maybe you got a little reckless and you were falling a little bit too close, and the state highway patrol saw that and pulled you over. And he comes up to you and says, let me see your license. And you pull out that license, and that license says, Tennessee. Now, do you think that cop is going to say, now, wait a minute. We're in the state of Louisiana. You're not in Tennessee. You can't drive anywhere but in the state of Tennessee. I'm going to take you in because you don't have a license in the state of Louisiana. You know that doesn't happen. Why? The full faith and credit clause. Because the state of Louisiana has to give full faith and credit to the fact that the state of Tennessee issued you a right to drive. And so we understand that concept. Well, what was the concern then about that Hawaii decision? Well, what if a couple, a gay couple, who supposedly has married in Hawaii, comes over to the state of Tennessee? Do we have to treat them like they're married, even though our laws say otherwise, even though we don't recognize that, even though our courts have never said that's right? That was the concern, that it was going to be just like the driver's license or just like heterosexual marriage. So what that prompted was Congress acted it passed a law called the Defense of Marriage Act. And it did several things. One of the things it did, it defined, for purposes of the federal government, a marriage as being between one man and one woman. But not only that, I think the thing that drove it more than that was not just that definition. It said that a state did not have to recognize same-sex marriage from another state if it was contrary to the laws of that state. In other words, it said that if you're in Tennessee, where it's unconstitutional for a man to marry another man and a woman to marry another woman, and somebody from Hawaii in that state can do that, and they move to Tennessee, Tennessee doesn't have to recognize that. And that's also under the full faith and credit clause because that clause says Congress determines the effect of those acts. And so... I was very encouraged by that. In fact, because I, I remember watching the vote. I was kind of nerdy back then, just watching that CNN or whatever it was, C-SPAN. And the vote came back overwhelmingly in favor of that law. And I thought, you know, I had been led to believe by the media that everybody was caught up in this thing. And I thought every, this was going to sweep the nation. But no, the people spoke through their representatives. That was in 1996. But as you know, in 2013 the United States Supreme Court struck down a portion of the Defense of Marriage Act. It was the portion that defined for the federal government that marriage was going to be between one man and one woman. That was ruled unconstitutional. Now, 
what a lot of people missed, what a lot of people still miss today, is that the court specifically said, we are not addressing the part of the Defense of Marriage Act that says one state can say, we don't recognize gay marriage here, and if you got married somewhere else where they do, we don't have to recognize that. The court did not touch that. The court did not address that. There's nothing in that opinion that suggests in any way that that law is unconstitutional off the books. But if you've been watching the news, you've seen that federal district court after federal district court is now saying that that portion of DOMA and also any aspect of a state constitution that prohibits gay marriage is unconstitutional. And so what we're heading towards is a showdown where this issue will probably be resolved in the United States Supreme Court. That's certainly what many of the activists in the gay rights movement want to see happen. And if you just look at the district court decisions, you'd be very discouraged if you were concerned about the biblical definition of marriage because those decisions almost invariably are saying that it's wrong for a state to limit marriage to a man and to a woman. That's the increasingly tolerant age that we live in. But not only that. Not only that, you probably saw in the news on Monday. Y'all know what happened on Monday? Well, there was an act called the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. And that act passed the Senate. What it was designed to do was to prohibit workplace discrimination against lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, and transgendered individuals. Well, that act got out of the Senate, but it was never taken up by the House. And so the President of the United States, frustrated at that, decided that he would sign an executive order that does the very same thing for the federal government, federal agencies, and those who contract with the federal government. I read an article that says that affects about 20% of the workforce in the United States of America. That was done on Monday. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. You're already seeing that in certain municipalities, You're seeing it in certain states that there are these laws being passed and they are dubbed civil rights laws and they supposedly prohibit a person from discriminating against a person because of their gay lifestyle or because they're lesbian or because they're bisexual. So folks, the ground has shifted. And I remember recently seeing a poll that said a bare majority, yes, a majority of Americans favor gay marriage. Now, ten years ago, that wasn't the case, but now it is. And so the point that I'm making is this. This is an increasingly tolerant age. And the viewpoints of society have changed so quickly. I don't know if I've ever seen society move so quickly on anything in terms of its consensus about how we are to organize ourselves. But it's not only in the courts. It's not only in the legislatures. Look at the entertainment. The entertainment is actively promoting homosexuality. You see homosexual characters in just about all the television shows. You see them in movies. You see them in the news. You see them now in commercials. Everything is being promoted. Everything is being normalized. And about the only thing that's not tolerant or not tolerated is the person who dares say that that's wrong and violative of God's will. That's the voice nobody wants to hear. That's the voice that gets shouted down. So what has that done to us? I'm afraid it's caused a lot of us to cower in fear. I'm afraid it's caused a lot of us to be quiet. A lot of us have not said anything. We're not speaking out. We are aware now that there are repercussions for speaking out. That there are going to be consequences. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be a target. 
And so I'm afraid a lot of us, even though we believe the truth that was taught last night about what God's Word says, we are not defending it. We're not verbalizing it. We're not articulating it. We're not talking about it. We're not sharing it. And so against that backdrop, I want to talk tonight about how should the Christian defend God's teachings on homosexuality in an increasingly tolerant age. And the first point I want to make to you is just this. We cannot be ashamed of God's teachings on homosexuality. Folks, there's no room for that. It is the Word of God Almighty. It's the Word of the Creator of the universe. What is there to be ashamed of? And yet, as I said, there are many times where I see Christians who are backing away from what the Word of God says. Look in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. Matthew, the 10th chapter, verses 32 through 33. This is Jesus talking to His apostles, sending them out on what is commonly referred to as the limited commission, so-called because the commission was limited to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, they were to limit their teaching to the Israelites. That's who they were going out to. And you'll remember, you contrast that with Matthew chapter 28, which we commonly call the Great Commission. Why? Because then he tells the apostles to go out into all the world. So this is the limited commission. In the midst of the limited commission, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, somebody said, now, wait a minute. Now, yes, I understand that this emphasizes and teaches the importance of confession, but, but Kevin, that means confession in the plan of salvation. That means that a person has to hear, believe, repent, and confess, and be baptized to be saved. And so this confession is not talking about what you're talking about. It's limited to the confession in obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I would agree with you that it certainly includes that. But it's not limited to that. And the reason why I say it's not limited to it, let's read the context. You know, we, like, we need to know context. We don't want to just take verses and kind of take them out of the Scriptures without reading the verses around. We need to know, what are we talking about here? And I want to back up in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 10 and see if the context will shed some more light on what it means to confess Jesus and what it means to deny Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus tells His apostles, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now those are the verses that immediately precede verses 32 and 33. What is he telling them and why? Well, what is he doing? He's sending them out to teach, right? And they're going to face opposition. And they're going to face persecution. And they're going to face people who don't like the message that they're bringing. And he's trying to encourage them, notwithstanding that persecution, notwithstanding that resistance, notwithstanding that ill treatment, you preach what you've heard. You teach what I've taught you. And don't you fear those. The worst they can do is kill the body. But you know what God in heaven can do? He can kill the body and He can destroy your soul in hell. And then in the midst of that, He says, Now, if you confess Me before men, I'll confess you before My Father in heaven. But if you deny Me before men, I'm going to deny you on judgment day. He's talking about teaching, folks. 
You can, when you confess Jesus, it's not just confessing that Jesus is the Christ, it's confessing His teaching. It's defending His teaching. It's preaching His teaching. That's confessing Christ. And by the same token, if we are fearful of His teaching, if we don't open our mouths to give His teaching, if we're scared to preach what God has said on any subject, including homosexuality, what are we doing? We are denying Jesus. And Jesus says, all right, you can do that. But on judgment day, when I'm the judge, when I determine eternal life or eternal death, I'm denying you. It's a serious thing, folks. We cannot deny the Lord and we cannot deny His teachings. And so we don't, we can't back away. It's not an optional thing. You say, well, I'm not confrontational. I don't have an outgoing personality and I'm not very bold and I'm not this. We're not talking about personality types. We're talking about defending the Word. And we can all do that. We must do that. Because our eternal destiny turns on that. Jesus just told us that. In fact, look over in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. The Bible says this, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That's New King James. Some versions say reprove them. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Have no fellowship with immorality. Have no fellowship with sin. Have no fellowship with ungodliness. Have no fellowship with unrighteousness. But what do you do? You expose it. You take light to it. You expose it. You identify it. You reject it. You rebuke it. You teach about it. Teach against it. Condemn it. We are obligated as ambassadors for Christ to share what the Gospel has to say. And the Gospel has a lot to say about sinfulness, about wickedness, about immorality, about transgression of God's law. And it is our obligation, not just the preachers, not just the uh, teachers, uh, public teachers, not just the elders, not just the deacons. Every individual Christian has an obligation to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. You mean on my job? Yeah. You mean in my neighborhood? Yes. You mean in my family reunion? Yes. You mean in my school? Yes. You mean on my ball team? Yes. Every single one of us has to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And so that would apply to homosexuality. Folks, we have to teach about it. We have to preach about it. And as several of you know, as we've had conversations, I believe one of the reasons why society has changed so quickly is because too many of us, and I'm including Kevin Clark in this statement, too many of us have been on the sidelines silent and said nothing. We haven't let our voices be known. We haven't articulated. We haven't stood up to be counted. And we've got to, friends. The Lord demands of it. We have to stand up and give the truth on this subject. And maybe my second point is the reason why, why we don't do that. And the second point is this. In addition to the fact that we can't be ashamed of God's teachings on homosexuality, friends, We've got to be willing to suffer persecution for God's teachings on homosexuality. Friends, it's here. <laughs> I don't say it's coming. It's here. I've talked to enough Christians. I talked to a Christian uh, not ter terribly long ago. He was telling me in his company they were so big about preaching and teaching and pushing on the employees' tolerance, as they define it, of homosexuality, that he just didn't feel right, didn't feel comfortable, and he ended up retiring early. 
to stay out of that environment. I mean, folks are paying the cost already. People are losing jobs, being passed over for promotions, uh, getting marked down in their grades in school, being shunned, alienated. Persecution is here, folks. But we need to understand that, accept that, and embrace it. It's, it's a reality. We've got to be willing to suffer persecution for God's teachings on homosexuality. Let me show you something. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Turn over there. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. The Bible says this. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution. Wait a minute. May suffer persecution. No. Could suffer persecution. No. Probably will suffer. Sometimes, likely, no, will suffer persecution. Period. So, here's my question. Do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? I suspect we all do. Then the Bible promises us that we will be persecuted. Now, friends, we've got to embrace that. And I think sometimes we have it. And we've got to understand that we're going to be persecuted, not just for homosexuality, what God says about that, about all of God's Word, but that includes that. And we've got to manage our expectations. We need to tell our children, look, you're going to be persecuted for this. You're going to be made fun of for this. You're going to be alienated for this. You're going to be ostracized for this. Get used to it. Be prepared. And I don't say that with any glee. I don't say that with any happiness. I don't like being ostracized. I don't like people not liking me. I don't like people saying mean things to me. I don't like being passed over for job promotion and things of that nature. But if the Bible tells me, Kevin, do you want to live godly in Christ Jesus? Yes, I do. Then you will suffer persecution. Kevin Clark needs to accept that. And everybody in this audience who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus needs to accept that. Now somebody will say, well, no, Kevin, what that's talking about is if, if we're living godly. So it's just talking about how we live, that we don't fornicate and we don't uh, murder and we don't steal and we don't lie. It's not talking about teaching. It's, it's just talking about how we live. And if we, we're going to live right, we're going to be persecuted. But it has nothing to do with, with teaching. Well... There's this pesky thing called context again <laughs> that we have to look at. So let's back up a little bit in verse 10 of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and listen to what the context of verse 12 is. But you have carefully followed my doctrine. This is Paul. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, listen to this, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And then, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So he's talking about the persecutions that happened to Paul in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And if you go back to Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, where that persecution is described, you know why Paul was persecuted? Because of what he taught. Because of what he taught. And so, yes, desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus means that we have to teach God's Word on everything. And friends, that's going to bring persecution. I'm afraid sometimes we're like the folks over in John chapter 12. Look over there. 
We, we, and I think a lot of people on this subject have been this way. We, we know the truth. We understand what God's Word says. We, we, we believe it, but when it comes to going public, when it comes to going on the record, we just can't bring ourselves to do it. Could it be that we fall in this category in John chapter 12, verses 42 through 43? It says, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Him. That's a reference to Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him. Why? lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why was that a concern? Verse 43, For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Is that our problem? That we don't want to go on record because we love the praise of men more than we love the praise of God. We don't want anybody to criticize us. We don't want anybody to call us bigoted. We don't want anybody to call us narrow-minded. We don't want anybody to call us backwards. We don't want anybody to call us fundamentalists. Boy, we don't want us to call us Bible-thumping, Bible-toting. You know, is that what we're concerned about? What folks are saying about us? And these folks were the same way. And they would not confess Jesus even though they believed. They believed, but not enough to go on record. And I wonder, is that us? Oh, we believe what God says about homosexuality, but not enough. We're not going to go on record. We're not going to open our mouths. We're not going to let people know. We're not going to let our co-workers know. We're not going to let our boss know. We're not going to let our fellow classmates know. We're not going to let our teachers know. We're not going to let uh, our, our friends and neighbors know. But we believe the truth. It's not enough just to believe it. We've got to teach it. We've got to share it. We've got to defend it. I like the way Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 1. Paul had this down. He understood that there is no place in the kingdom of God for men-pleasers. If you're a men pleaser, don't sign up. This is not for you. In Galatians 1, chapter 10, uh, I mean, chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Think about that. What is Paul saying? He says, Look, if the most important thing in life to me is to make people like me, is to make people think highly of me. If that's where I get my self-worth, if that's what I'm all about, I just want people to think good things about me and say good things and like me and want to be around me, if that's the most important thing in the world to me, then Christianity is not for me. And you know, that has a lot of credibility coming from Paul. Because, you know, he was going one direction for a long time, doing great in Judaism. He said he'd excelled beyond many of his contemporaries. He had been taught at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the leading Jewish rabbis at that time. He had a lot invested in Judaism, and then he turned on a dime and gave all that up. And he said, look, if I was about pleasing men, I wouldn't have given up that stuff. If that's what was most important to me, I would have stayed right where I was. Because there are a lot of folks that wanted me to stay there. And the point I'm making is this, folks. There's no place for men pleasing in the kingdom. And that's true about this subject, homosexuality, or any other. We just can't be that concerned about what men are going to say. Folks are going to say, and it's going to get worse and worse. As the this opinion of society gets more and more tolerant, we're going to be persecuted more and more on this issue. We just have to say, you know, I don't like that. I wish it were otherwise. I wish society were different. But I'll tell you one thing. I want the praise from God in heaven. And that's the most important thing to me. I want to hear on Judgment Day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says here, because none of those folks are going to have anything to do with your salvation. But Jesus does. And so we've got to get over this thing. 
We're going to suffer persecution. And you know, when I say that, I'm almost a little bit embarrassed to say that, because when we talk about persecution today on this issue of homosexuality, what are we talking about? We're talking about somebody doesn't like us, somebody says something bad about us, somebody may pass us over for a job promotion, maybe we don't get a job, maybe worst case scenario we lose a job. And I don't want to minimize any of that. I don't want to discount any of that. I don't want to marginalize any of that. But, you know, I just kind of wonder, what would the Christians in the first century have said? If we came to them moaning and complaining about that kind of persecution. And, and I really think about it when I think about verses like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 31 through 34. Turn over there. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 31 uh, through 34. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 31 through 34. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, now he's, that's a reference to being enlightened, to obeying the gospel, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Now, this writer of Hebrews says, he has taken this so far that he's in chains because of the cause of Christ. And furthermore, he said that the, these brethren, when they shortly after they became Christians, he said, you know, you remember your suffering, don't you? He said, you lost your possessions because of the cause of Christ. And you lost your liberty because of the cause of Christ. We're not talking about somebody making fun of folks. We're talking about serious stuff, folks. That's the kind of persecution. And why do we think sometimes, why does Kevin Clark think he's going to skate through life and, and not get any persecution when my brethren in the first century experienced this? Or, or let's do this. This is even better. Look over in Hebrews chapter 11. And let's start with verse 32. Now this will really wake you up. Hebrews chapter 11. You know, this is what we call the hall of fame of faith. It talks about biblical faith and what it is. And biblical faith is an obedient faith. And all through chapter 11, you talk about, or God talks about, what people did by faith. This is why we say this idea that just mental assent, just believing something and not acting on it, is acceptable to God. No, no, no. The kind of faith that's pleasing to God, Hebrews 11:6, is a faith that's obedient, that acts. So after he talks about all this obedient faith, he goes on to make these points about people of faith and what they did. Uh, let's start in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and we're pumped up and we're excited. Yeah, this is great. This is wonderful. I want to be with these people. And then, wait a minute. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, 
afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And we want to talk about persecution because of our stand on homosexuality. Sawn in two, slain with the sword. Is any of us going to be sawn in two because of our stance on homosexuality, teaching what God's Word says? And so I just want to, I want to put it in perspective. Yes, we will be persecuted. Yes, we're going to suffer that. But we don't need to cry about that. And we don't need to whine about that. And we don't need to complain about that. Because God's people have gone through far worse. We need to stand up and be counted. And we need to pay the price. That's what it means to be one of Christ's disciples. That's what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. That's what it means to be a servant for Christ. That's what it means to be a soldier for Christ. And so we cannot be ashamed of what God had to say. And we need to understand that we will suffer persecution for the God's teachings on homosexuality. Let me give you a third point. And this is important. When we defend God's teachings on homosexuality, we have to defend those teachings in a spirit of love and humility. I'll say that again. When we defend God's teachings on homosexuality, we have to do it in a spirit of love and a spirit of humility. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. I always like this verse. Ephesians, the fourth chapter and the 15th verse. The Bible says this, Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head Christ. Now somebody said, well, Kevin, it doesn't matter. I'm defending the truth. I'm speaking the truth. And uh, why does it matter how I do it? Because the Bible says so. Speaking the truth with love. It's just as important how you speak in terms of what you speak. They're the same thing. You can't do one and say, I've fulfilled that command. No, you haven't. If you speak the truth, but you don't speak it in love, you haven't done Ephesians 4.15. And sometimes I hear things. Sometimes I hear things from the pulpit. Sometimes I hear things in the media that yes, it's the truth about homosexuality. But it is definitely not in love. And I think I told you last night, we, we, we don't need uh, the late Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church. We don't need uh, protest and picket of homosexual soldiers. We, we don't need that. And that's not because I'm being soft. And that's not because I'm equivocating. That's not because I'm compromising, because that's not in love. We care about souls. That's why we're teaching. We're compassionate. We want people to be saved, just like our God and Father desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We're persuading people so they avoid a fate of eternal damnation. We care about souls and people. That's why we're teaching. That's why we're speaking. That's why we're defending God's teaching on homosexuality. And it's important that we do it for the right reason. Let me give you an example, not necessarily in this particular area, but just the principle of speaking the truth, but not with love. And I'm ashamed to say it's coming out of my own life. I remember when I was in college, um, there's one day I was going down from the dorm uh, to my classes, had one of these 8 o'clock classes, uh, didn't like, and hard to get up, but I had to do it. And uh, the way that I went to uh, class from my dorm room is I would go across the courtyard in front of the dorm room, and then there was a bridge across a major thoroughfare, a major road right next to the uh, dormitory. And at the foot of that bridge, I saw some gentlemen in suits and ties, and they had Bibles that they were handing out, the Gideon's Bibles. And so I saw them and said, <laughs> fresh meat. But I had to go to class. So I went to class, 
And then I came back, and I was excited. Oh, I went upstairs, I got my Bible, I came downstairs, and I started firing. I mean, everything I had. I knew they couldn't handle it. I knew just the questions to ask, to trip them up, make them look silly. I might have spoken some truth that day, but I did not speak it in love. That was just a brash, arrogant young man trying to show up some fellows. That's not Ephesians 4.15. That's not speaking the truth in love. And we just got to be careful, folks, as we talk about the truth on this subject or any other, that we have the right frame of mind, we have the right purpose, we have the right attitude. It's not enough for God for you simply to articulate truth. How are you articulating truth? Why? What motivates it? Speaking the truth in love. I think about this when I think about that concept. Look over in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. I can't help but think about this when we talk about speaking the truth in love. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Let's read. Now early in the morning, he, that's Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that, that such should be stoned. Well, what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Very interesting story here. So we have a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And under the old law, Leviticus 20, we are told that when a man commits adultery, the man and the woman with whom the adultery is committed, both of them are to be stoned. So already it's a little fishy. Now remember what they said. We've caught her in the act. Well, if you're caught in the act, then there's got to be a fellow. And there was no fellow there. Just the woman. And so they present the woman to Jesus, said, Moses says she needs to be put to death. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus is writing on the ground and doesn't seem to be listening. And they keep asking questions. And finally he says, well, the one who doesn't have any sin, let him throw the first stone. And starting with the oldest one among them, they left because their conscience convicted them. And then Jesus looks around, doesn't see anyone, and asks, where are those that condemned you, this woman? They're not here. Well, I'm not going to condemn you, but go and sin no more. Now, somebody will say, you know what? Jesus was too soft. Jesus is too soft on that. He's too soft on... No, hold up, wait a minute now. What did the Lord say? He said that what she did was a transgression of God's law. That's what sin is. He said, you have sinned. And then furthermore, he said, don't do that anymore. But go and sin no more. And showed a lot of compassion in doing that. 
And that's what I see as an example for us. We don't compromise the truth. Jesus didn't compromise the truth. But there was no haughtiness. There was no self-righteousness. There was no arrogance in Jesus. There was love and concern for this woman's soul. Go and sin no more. And we need to have that kind of attitude. We need to defend the truth of God's Word on homosexuality with love and compassion. You say, but Kevin, I don't understand it. And it's nasty. And ugh, and I can't, oh, why? And icky and all this kind of... No, there's no room for that. There's no room for that. I mean, I understand the Bible says it's against nature. I understand that. But it's sin, and it's a sin that's going to send people to hell. And that's something we need to do about, something about. We've got an answer. It's the Lord Jesus. We have an antidote. We have a prescription. How do we keep that to ourselves and let people continue to be sick? We've got to share this because we're concerned about people. Look over in First uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Again, we're talking about the truth of God's Word on homosexuality has to be defended in love and in humility. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now listen to this last part. With meekness and fear. You, you kind of get the sense that God cares about how we defend the truth, don't you? That's what He's saying. That the attitude is with meekness and fear. Not haughtiness and self-righteousness. And my dad said sometimes, you know, he, he, runs, he said, I've, I've run across Christians that act like they've never sinned before. They just can't understand it. They, they've forgotten what it was like to be an alien sinner. Are we like that? We've forgotten. We're just so removed from how I can't believe it. How would they do something like that? Let me tell you somebody who did not forget what it meant to be an alien sinner. That's the Apostle Paul. And I want you to hear this. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12-15. through 15. There needs to be humility in our speech when we address this subject or any other that God's Word talks about. You listen to this man, Paul. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12-15. And you ask me if, if, if he's a person that doesn't know what it's like to be a sinner and, and can't relate and just haughty and self-righteous. Listen to this man. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ, no less. A man full of the Holy Spirit. A man that did many great things for the Lord. And here's what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 12. And I thank Christ Jesus for the for our Lord who has enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now here's a man who remembers where he came from. Listen to what he says. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an ins insolent man. You remember all the things that Paul did before he obeyed the Lord and obeyed the Gospel. He persecuted Christians. He was the one uh, at whose feet uh, they laid the clothes of the people who were stoning Saul, or Stephen. He put Christian men and women into prison. He says in Acts 26 that when a vote was cast to kill Christians, his hand went up. He did all of that. He says, I'm ashamed of that. I'm so ashamed of what I've done. What does he call himself? The chief of all sins. 
But then again, he says, you know, there's, there's, there's a wonderful silver lining to that story. Because as bad as I was, as sinful as I was, as anti-everything Christ as I was, I'm now useful for the ministry through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, if I can do that, if I can change like that, if I can have a 180 like that, anybody can. And that's the truth. The power of the blood of Jesus can change anybody. And it can change people who are caught up in homosexuality. But the point being made here is when we share this Word, let's do it in love and compassion. Let me give you a couple of anecdotes that may bring that home. I was at a congregation once. And I'd preached about this subject. And there was a couple who said they wanted to talk to me afterwards, after everybody had left the building. And so we waited and waited. Folks left. And they said that their son struggled with the things I was talking about that night, homosexuality. Now their son was a Christian. Their son had obeyed the gospel. Their son was a member of the Lord's church. But he struggled with homosexuality. And the message that they wanted to give was, first of all, that their son said everything that Kevin said tonight on homosexuality was absolutely true. It was God's Word. He did not contest that. He did not reject that. He did not attack that. He was just saying that although he recognizes the truth of God's Word on the subject, he struggles with desires that are inappropriate. And the parents went on to tell me that at a particular congregation, he had come forward one time and confessed those inappropriate homosexual desires and the fact that he was struggling with it. Now what you would expect from God's people, what you would have expected from brothers and sisters in Christ, is that they would have helped him. They would have embraced him. They would have assisted him. Instead, he was treated like a pariah. He was treated like a leper. He was treated as an outcast. Now, brethren, that's not love. And that's not right. That's what I'm saying. That's what the Bible says. We defend the truth on this. But we do it in humility and love. All of us, Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned. I mean, that's the point Jesus is making in John 8. You're getting all riled up about this woman caught up in don'ts. Which one of you has not sinned? The fact that we are deserving of eternal damnation, the fact that we were completely lost at one point in time before we obeyed the Gospel, that ought to make us humble when we approach other people who are in the same position we are. Oh, I know it may be a different sin. I know it may be something you can't relate to. I know it may be something that doesn't appeal to you, but it's sin. And you can relate on that level that that person is lost the way you were lost until you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. I uh, was at another congregation talking to a lady, and I would preached about something like this. And she said, yeah, I've got a son. And he knows the truth, and I'm proud of him on that. But he's kind of hard in how he applies that truth. He doesn't want to be even seen with, be around, be in the same room with people who practice this lifestyle. And she said, I'm working with him. 
to get him to have the right heart and the right attitude. Can you imagine Jesus being that way? I, I can't be seen with these tax collectors and sinners. Don't want to be around these people. Even though I'm the great physician, even though they're sick, even though I had the prescription, don't want to be around them. That's not right, folks. We've got to have love and compassion. And if there's anybody in this audience who doesn't have that attitude, go back to the Scriptures. Go back to God's Word. Because, you know, we can lose our soul for dispositional sin as well as doctrinal sin, you know. You can be just as right as you can be in terms of what the doctrine is and your understanding of it, but if you have a wrong heart, you will burn in hell as well. And boy, that, that's a sobering thought. So we need to defend it in love and humility. But let me give you a fourth point. Fourth point is remember. Remember that we live in the world. What does that mean? Remember that we live in the world. I want to direct your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses the Corinthian congregation about withdrawal. And he, in verses 9 through 13, elaborates, clarifies what he means by withdrawal. And I want to read that because I think there's a very good point for what we're talking about this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are uh, those also who are outside. Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And you say, well, Kevin, what does this have to do with anything? This is just a discussion of withdrawal. When a congregation sees that one of its members is not walking according to the pattern, who is walking disorderly, as Second Thessalonians 3 says, then you withdraw from that person, and that means you withdraw social relations. You can't even eat with that person. So what does that have to do with homosexuality? What does that have to do with what you're talking about tonight? Well, notice he starts out, he says in verse 9, Now, I wrote to you not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And then he comes back and said, but guys, come on. I wasn't talking about people of the world. Because then you'd have to go out of the world. That teaching was about anyone named a brother. Anyone who's been baptized into Christ. Anyone who's a Christian. When that person's walking disorderly, you put them away. He said, I was not talking about people of the world because that would be impossible. Then you'd have to get up out of the world because all around you are people who are sexually immoral, who are covetous, who are idolatrous. That's all around. You can't get away from that. And that's the point that I'm trying to make. We live in the world. It's not our job to go out today and come up with this utopian community, only Christians, nothing but Christians, and we'll have banks by Christians for Christians, and hospitals by Christians for Christians, and law firms for Christians by everything, grocery stores for Christians by Christians, and we do everything we can to stay away from the filth of the world. That's not what Paul's talking about. And that's not Christianity. We live in the world. We've got to deal with that. And so sometimes people will ask me, well, how do you feel about working around somebody who's a homosexual? Well, about the same way I feel about somebody who's a fornicator, whom I work with, or somebody who's a drunkard, or somebody who's an adulterer, or somebody who's a gossiper. What's the difference, folks? 
We're going to single out this sin and say, but, but there's something worse about this sin than those other sins. All sin is transgression of God's law and all sin unrepented of and not cleansed by the blood of Jesus will result in you going to hell. What's the difference? It, 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 we live in the world, folks. We're going to have to deal with that. And it's not our job to withdraw and disengage from society because we feel like it's going the wrong way. That's the time to engage more. We need to talk more. We need to teach more. We need to have more Bible studies to bring people back to the truth of God's Word on this subject or any other. It's not a time to retreat. We live in the world. Now, having said that now, I'm not saying that we become just like the world. I'm not saying that we get too chummy with the world. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33. Oh yes, we have to have associations with the world. We're in the world. We must teach the world. But it doesn't override this teaching. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And so we need to be careful who we associate with. We need to be careful how close we get to people. But we can do both. We can teach the world. What's the old saying? We can be in the world, but not of the world. And that's what we're called to do. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus talked about this. You know, we can't hide our lights. We can't disengage. We can't retreat. We can't run. Because we are the light in a world of darkness. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it what? It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, that's what we're supposed to do. We are lights in a community of darkness. People have to see our light, see what we're practicing, see what we're teaching, see what we're living, see how we're raising our kids. What's the purpose of that? So they think I'm a fine, upstanding citizen. They just think I'm the greatest thing. I'm just a one. No, that they may glorify our God in heaven. It's not about us. It's about God. We're trying to bring glory to God. And one of the ways that we do that is we have to teach and we have to live right, and we have to share right, and we have to be right, and uphold those things that are right. So we have to live in the world. But the last thing I want to give to you, and then we'll bring it to a close, is this. Please remember that the sky is not falling on the Lord's church. Please remember the sky is not falling on the Lord's church. You remember the old story, Chicken Little, right? World's coming to an end. Sky's falling. And what I mean by that is this. Look, folks, I'm as concerned as anybody about what's going on in society about homosexuality. I'm concerned as anybody about the way the courts are going. I'm as concerned as anybody about the way the legislatures are going. I'm concerned as anybody by the way the media are going on this issue. And I get upset sometimes. I get worried sometimes. I get anxious. I worry about what kind of world are Blake and Brooke and Jasmine, my three little ones, what kind of world are they going to inherit if things keep going this way? But you know, sometimes I get, I get a little too caught up in that. And I forget some things. And I forget this point. Folks, it does not matter what the courts say. It doesn't matter what men do in their legislatures. It doesn't matter what men write and what men put in movies. Nothing is going to happen to the Lord's church. It's not going anywhere, folks. It has been under worse circumstances than this, and it kept on beating. 
The church is not going away. We think this is bad. What about the Christians who lived under the time of Nero? What about Christians being thrown into the Colosseum, eaten alive by lions? What about Christians dipped in tar and put up as light posts, set aflame to light the way? And the Lord's church still kept going. I want us to understand this point. Because sometimes we have a defeatist attitude. And sometimes we, we almost throw up our hands in despair. And again, I understand concern. I understand anxiety. I understand that we don't like the way things are going. But don't lose faith in the Lord's church. Because this is what the Lord said about His church. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Sky is not falling on the Lord's church. No matter what happens on this issue of homosexuality. Matthew chapter 16. Remember that Jesus had asked, then who do men say that he was? And then Peter finally answered the question by saying, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I want to focus on verse 17, Jesus' response to that confession that Peter made that Jesus was indeed and is indeed the Son of the living God. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now listen to verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now listen to this. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The gates of Hades. Even death itself will not prevail against the Lord's church. Now friends, we need to take that to heart. The Lord's church is not going to go anywhere. And it doesn't matter what kind of laws they pass. It doesn't matter if the vast majority of people support homosexuality. It doesn't matter if homosexual marriage is legal across the land. The Lord's church will keep on doing what it's always done, which is seeking and saving that which is lost. And the question is, are you going to be a part of that? I like Romans 8, 31. Boy, he's talking about getting me pumped up. Romans 8, verse 31. Look, look at what Paul says about what we have going for us, those of us who are in the Lord's church. Don't get disappointed by the court rulings. Don't get disappointed about the legislative enactments. Don't be disappointed about the media. Don't get so discouraged that you think, how can we go forward because of this? Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's what I say to people who get too discouraged. And again, I understand the anxieties. I have them myself. I understand the concerns. But the sky is not falling on the Lord's church. And I'll tell you something else that I use to encourage myself. It's the words of Joshua in Joshua 24.15. In fact, let's go over there and read that. Joshua 24.15. This gets me encouraged. And you can say this, and I can say this, no matter what happens in the world. Joshua 24.15, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, 
Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But listen to this. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I tell you, friends, when, when I get discouraged, when I feel bad, when I feel worried, when I, I'm just so concerned about the state of this society, of, of the courts, and of the land, and of this country, I say this to myself, as for me, and as for my house, we will serve the Lord. And as part of serving the Lord, my house is going to defend God's teaching on homosexuality. And we're not going to be ashamed of it. We're going to understand that we'll be persecuted for it. We're going to do it in love and, and humility. We're going to realize that we're still in the world and we have to deal with that. And uh, we, we understand that ultimately the Lord will prevail through His church. Thank you for your time and your attention. All right. Uh, question number one. In the New Testament, Paul was the one who addressed homosexuality. How do we know that this wasn't just a personal prejudice of his? And of course, that's a very frequent and common criticism that because the teaching that we see on homosexuality, and we talked about Romans 1, uh, 24 through 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 1 Timothy 1, 10, all of those are found in the epistles of Paul. So the accusation is that it was just Paul's axe to grind, that he was a homophobe, much in the same way that people talk about the teaching of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, 22-33, about women being subject to their husbands, that he was a chauvinist. Well, the problem is what we talked about last night, which is all Scripture is inspired. And in fact, uh, let's look over in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's a very interesting passage. 2 Peter chapter 3. Of course, that passage is encouraging us to be prepared for the second coming of the Lord. But in the midst of that, Peter says this. Now remember, we've already established in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all Scripture is inspired. And we established last night that inspired means God-breathed. It means it came from God. It wasn't just man saying what he wants to say. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3, begin verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him, Jesus, in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also... Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people, listen to this, twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Hmm, interesting. So he's talking about the writings of Paul. And he says that there are people, he's got some things hard to understand in there. And there are people that will take those writings and they'll twist them to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Let me throw this out. If I said this to you, I said I went to a mall and I was in the food court and I saw, boy, the biggest fellow I've ever seen. The guy was like six foot eight. 360 pounds, and I didn't see an ounce of fat on that guy. Huge, impressive, bulging biceps. And then I went down to the sporting goods store, and I saw the rest of the Tennessee Titans football team. Now, when I introduced Mr. Six Foot Seven, 360 or 70 pounds, I didn't tell you anything other than the fact that he, his dimensions, and he had some bulging biceps. But when I say I saw him, and then I went to the sporting goods store, and I saw the rest of the Tennessee Titans, what do you know about him? He's a Tennessee Titan. Because we're putting in the same category. 
Now that's what Peter just uh, He said, when they twist the writings of Paul, it's this, what they do with the rest of the Scriptures, meaning that Peter considers the writings of Paul to also be Scripture. And then we know from last night, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, all Scripture is inspired of God, meaning it's God-breathed. If it's God-breathed, it came from God and not Paul. And it wasn't his bias, and it wasn't his axe to grind, and it wasn't his prejudice. So, you know, and the problem is this thing, you know, you say, well, we just want to isolate Paul. Well, no, now you've got Peter in this thing. Because Peter's saying what Paul wrote is Scripture. It's inspired. So the answer to that is we know it's not his bias. We know it's not prejudice because the things that Paul wrote are inspired Scripture. And because it's inspired Scripture, it is the Word of God. It is God's teaching and not his personal bias. Um, in 2 Samuel 1.26, David said his love for Jonathan exceeded his love of women. Were they gay lovers? And, of course, that's also a frequent criticism uh, several things to say on that. There's absolutely nothing in that verse that would suggest that. All he's saying is they had a very intense relationship. They had a good friendship. They had a very strong bond. But there's nothing in there that suggests that it was anything to do with homosexuality. David is described as a man after God's own heart. It was very clear under the Mosaical dispensation that homosexuality was uh, a sin. It was an abomination. You can't describe a man after God's own heart being in a homosexual relationship as being a man after God's own heart. There's nothing about that to suggest in the least bit. Uh, men can have close friendships, folks. Uh, I'm reading some books right now about, um, I think his name is Dakota Andrews, who was, uh, I think, the first Marine in three decades to get the Medal of Honor and uh, for his work in Afghanistan. But he was talking about the bond that men form when they're in battle, especially in Afghanistan against the Taliban, where your life is under threat every day. And it's a close bond, and it's a unique bond. So David says he has a close relationship with Jonathan. That does not mean that they were gay lovers. That does not mean it had anything to do with homosexuality. And there's absolutely no evidence of that. In fact, the evidence is to the contrary, that David was a man of God, a man after God's own heart. He followed God's law, and God's law made it clear that homosexuality was sin. So I don't believe that will hold up. Let's look at some, another question. Uh, known homosexual men that are ministers, if they are not practicing the act, would you hire him as a preacher? Known homosexual men that are ministers, if they are not practicing the act, would you hire him as a preacher? I guess what they're getting at is a person who has, like the young man that I told you about, who's struggling with his feelings, but he understands what the truth is, and he's not trying to act on that. And I guess the question is asking, would I hire him as a preacher? It's kind of weird for me to answer that question because of just the way decisions are made about that. But let me say this on that. Uh, if a person is going to stand up in front of people and present the Word of God, there's a certain standard that has to be adhered to. Uh, you see that uh, in 1 Timothy 3 when it talks about the qualifications for elders. That doesn't mean the elders are sinless. It doesn't mean that they don't uh, fall or err. But they have to be a certain moral character. And the same would be true about those who get up and present the Word of God. So if this person is having a lot of issues with this, it may not be wise for them to be in the pulpit. They may need to do a better job of controlling this. Uh, the same thing if I'm having uh, lustful thoughts uh, all the time, or I'm struggling with uh, stealing or, or gossiping or lying or whatever. Uh, we need to be wise about the people that we put in positions uh, to preach the Word because we know that for many people, the messenger can outweigh the message. But, having said this, 
is that young man who is struggling with that, is it wrong for him to struggle against? No, he's just got to work on that. And he's got to use the power of God. He cannot act upon it. But if he has the attraction, is that necessarily wrong? It's not. I don't see any scriptures that will condemn that. What is condemned is acting on that, uh, engaging in homosexual conduct. And what he needs to do is to pray to God and study that that desire, that inordinate desire, will be removed from him. But I will say this. We all know this, that it's not just acts for which we're condemned. Jesus made it clear that if a man looks to a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart. And so I can't go around as a heterosexual thinking about women in ways that are inappropriate. I can acknowledge that woman looks nice and move on. But if I don't move on, then I've committed sin. And of course, the same thing would be true about homosexuality. So that's the answer, or my answer to that one. Uh, this is just a comment. Then what is the best way that we Christians can address this that would be most effectual as far as getting our government to hear us and address this in the right way? Well, the first thing I would say is, let's put aside for a second the government issue. That, that's important. But the most important issue is to preach and teach the Word. But, because that's what we're about. I mean, sometimes, and I'm not saying the, the, the person who wrote this question is, is coming from this perspective, but sometimes I hear people talk about Christianity as a tool just to make better communities and better families and a better nation. And although those are great fringe benefits of Christianity, that's not what it's about. It's about saving souls. It's about getting people reconciled to God through Christ. And so the first thing we can do is talk to our neighbors, talk to our friends, talk to our co-workers, talk to our fellow students, talk to our teachers about what the Word of God says on this subject and any other. Have more Bible studies. Get people engaged. Use social media. Put the Word of God out there. There's so many ways now to get the Word of God on Twitter or LinkedIn or um, old school MySpace and Facebook and whatever it is. Just get the Word of God out there. The funny thing to me is when you look in the New Testament, we're so amazed by all the conversions. And yet, I don't know why we're amazed, because all those conversions are preceded by what? Getting the Word of God out there. When you preach the Word, when you teach the Word, people come. And so that's the first thing. Now, on the government side, uh, if you have the ability to impact the government, as we do in this nation, then I think you should do whatever you can to try to lobby for, if you will, or encourage our leaders to stand for what's right. Uh, that can be writing letters to the editors. It can be writing letters to your congressman. It can be writing letters to senators. Uh, it can be, uh, if you've got friendships, some people have friendships with people in power, sitting down and talking to them. Uh, I've been in places where I've been able to preach, and there are people uh, in political office who are in my office, I mean, in my audience, and so I can preach to them. I was at a place where uh, the mayor of Harpersville, Alabama, happened to be in the audience, and so I can preach. Uh, not everybody's in that position to do that, but what I'm saying is anything you can do to try to encourage people uh, to do what's right is a good thing. Let people know. Generally, my understanding, we've got some people in the audience who know this better than I do, but my understanding is politicians respond to votes. They respond to voters. And the more people who say they feel a certain way, they tend to go that way. And so the more that we express our viewpoints on these things and other things, people are going to listen. But having said that, I want to focus on the spiritual aspect, because I think that's the most important. It's just get the Word of God. And obviously, if people start taking the Word of God seriously, then it's going to impact everything, including government. Uh, so that's what I'd say on that. But I do think one of the, the uh, shortcomings of all of us, I'll include myself, is I don't think we've been vocal enough. So we've got to stand up and be counted. We got to, and we do it with love and humility. And, and, and what does the cause such a disservice are some of the people that get on and say the meanest, uh, just terrible things 
supposedly in support of the biblical view. And then what happens? Well, people look at that and they recoil from that. They think, well, if that's what that's all about, I'm running from that. Well, that's not what Christianity is all about. That's not what God's Word is all about. But that's the caricature that's sometimes built up in the media, and so it's easy to knock it down, and it basically promotes kind of an anti-Christian, anti-God attitude. So I would say, instead of having those folks, uh, why, why not you? Why don't you step up and say, look, this is what the Word of God says. And the more reasonable we are, the more loving we are, the more humble we are, the more likely the message is going to be received. You're never going to get everybody. Obviously, Jesus, who was the master teacher, never got everybody. But Jesus never got in the way of the message. And sometimes we get in the way of the message with improper speech. So that's what I would say about that. Do get involved, but most importantly, spread the word. My parents have been married for 70 years. My in-laws have been married 61 years. I have been married 31 years. How do I respond to a homosexual when they ask, who are you to come between two people who love each other? And that certainly is a question that's on the minds of many. Uh, We believe in this country very strongly in liberty. And we feel like that we ought to have as much liberty as we can. And the government should stay out of our bedrooms. We hear that. And the government shouldn't tell us what to do. And we like limited government. But what we're saying here is two levels. One, putting aside the government question, the reason why I have the right to say something is because God has said something. God, who's the architect of the universe, God, who's the creator of the universe, God, who created everything we have, has spoken. And we have every right to defend what God has said. It's not my opinion. It's not what I came up and said, you know, the world, according to Kevin Clark, is X. It's what God said, and I am only being a messenger. And I tell people sometimes, if you don't like the message, don't be mad at me. Be mad at the God in heaven who inspired the message. Now, if I didn't study right, if I misrepresented what the Word of God said, then you can be mad at me, because I've done wrong as a messenger. But if I'm simply telling you what the Word of God said, I have every right to do that. And as far as the, the government is said, I guess that goes to a question of whether or not government can legislate morality, and I would just say we do that all the time, and we will always do that. The, the idea that somehow government cannot legislate morality is, to me, nonsensical. You can go through a whole host of laws and say the reason why we're doing it is morality. We're saying you should do some things and you should not do other things. That's morality. So the concept that, oh, you can't do this because it's legislating morality, then let's just do away with all laws. Because laws are based on some moral basis of this is right, this is wrong, this is good for society, this is not good for society. That's the nature of law, and I don't think most of us would subscribe to lawlessness. Does Congress have the constitutional right to override an executive order? If so, why don't they? Uh, No, not really. If the executive order stays within the confines of the executive branch of government, then the president does have the right to issue those orders. Uh, Now, having said that, remember why that was issued. It was because the president was frustrated with Congress not passing legislation that would affect the entire nation. So that executive order only affects 20%. What does that mean? There's 80% that have not been affected. That's the, uh, the realm that Congress has. But no, the, the President certainly has the authority on the Constitution to do that. Now, having said that, some people have questioned over the years, has the President gone too far with executive privilege and executive powers? And there's a lot of uh, uh, court opinions, a lot of ink that's been spilled on that question. But uh, I think that what the President did, why I might disagree with it, why I don't think it's uh, morally right, as far as government is concerned, uh, I think that's fine. Now, I will make this distinction, though. Uh, there have been some situations, uh, and, and DOMA, I think, would be one of them, 
where the executive has chosen not to defend the laws of the federal government. And my personal opinion is that that's wrong. That if the, the laws are on the book, the executive branch is to execute the laws on the books. So I don't think you can pick and choose and say, I don't like this law, therefore I'm not going to execute it. You know, it's not, it's almost, it's kind of the biblical thing. It's not about what you like or dislike. If the law has been faithfully and duly enacted by Congress, then it must be executed and enforced by the executive branch. I don't think that that's something you have a prerogative to. And I think recently the Supreme Court spoke to some of that. So to that extent, I, I do disagree with using executive powers to basically ignore faithfully enacted laws by Congress. But staying within the executive branch itself, the president does seem to have the authority to do that. If your condemnation of homosexuality is based on the teachings of your religion, then how does passing laws that marginalize homosexuals not violate the establishment clause of the Constitution? Your faith is not the faith of all. And of course, this is a legal question, not a religious question. Uh, what I would say on that is this. There's a, a, that we, what I said before, we legislate morality all the time. And what we have said in society, and what many societies before us have said, is that marriage is defined as between a man and between a woman. And to say that no one else can enter into that relationship, that no one else has a right to enter into that relationship, is not oppressing anybody, is not discriminating against somebody, it's just upholding the definition of that relation. And that relation has a purpose in society. Certainly, God gave it a purpose, but from a societal perspective, we have decided that's the best way to bring offspring into the world and to raise those offspring in that environment. And society has every right to do that. That's not marginalizing homosexuality. It's not discriminating. It's not oppressing. It's defending the family unit as we think it ought to be configured. And as I said, we pass laws all the time based on how we think society ought to be organized. I, mean, I could turn the question on the head and said, well, why do you think uh, you have a right to say that homosexuals can be married? I mean, we are saying that marriage is defined as between one man and one woman. That's not a new thing. It's not something we just voted on. Just about every society you can think about has defined marriage that way. It goes back for millennia. And all we're saying is we're going to continue to defend that. Now, that may change. It is changing in some places. But to me, I have no problem at all saying that I have rights or liberties under this system of government. And I, unlike people in past governments, can impact my government. Well, if I can impact my government... I, as an individual Christian, have to do so consistent with God's laws because I'm going to be held accountable for what? Everything I do in the body. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 10. So if I go out and I vote for something that's contrary to God's word, I'll be held accountable for that. So I have to exercise my right to vote in a way that I think is consistent with the Scriptures. And so if the vote comes to me, if somebody asks me, should these individuals be allowed to marry, my answer is no. And the fact that my answer, whether it's based in religion uh, whether it's based, I mean, you can make a, a non-religious argument uh, for the family. You could say, well, look, the only way that offspring can come into this world is a male and a female. And because that's true, we want to reward that behavior. We want to reward that unit. A homosexual marriage, in order to bring children, first of all, they can't bring children, and they have to use artificial means of reproductive technology that's more expensive. And if we just want to go back to the basics... It's simplest, it's easiest to reward this relationship. Now, that's a secular explanation. But it doesn't matter if it's a secular explanation. It doesn't matter if it's a religious explanation. Prime example. If we have a law that says 
don't murder. And I vote for that law because the Bible says don't murder. Is that law invalid? Is it a violation of the Establishment Clause? Because the reason why I voted for it is religious? No, and the courts have addressed that specifically. They've said that's not a violation of Establishment Clause. Now, if I say you have to go to a congregation of people who understand the plan of salvation to be to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, and then you're a part of the church, if I legislate that, yeah, that's going to be a violation of the Establishment Clause. And not only that, that's just not how God operates. God demands that people come to Him on a voluntary basis. I would never be in favor of using the government to force people into the church because you can't get into the church through government. You have to voluntarily choose to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was a very long-winded answer for that. But essentially, going back to what was said, I don't in any way see uh, taking a stand against homosexuality or homosexual marriage as a violation as the, of the Establishment Clause. And to my knowledge, there's been no court who has held that or has, which has held that either. Uh, can we expose wickedness through one-on-one teaching and conversations while staying out of politics? Same-sex marriage, non-discrimination, etc. And I'll go to the second question. But can we expose wickedness through one-on-one teachings and conversations? Absolutely we can. And I, and I hope that I said from the very beginning that the most important thing to do is to spread the Word of God, is to teach the Word of God. Now, in addition to that, what I said is, if you are living in a society that allows you to impact your government, and you exercise that right, then you ought to do it in a way that's consistent with Christian principles and God's law. So again, if you're going to vote, you better vote thinking about God's principles. And I know sometimes it's difficult, and I know some Christians who say, you know, it's so difficult, I'm not going to participate. But if you're going to participate, you need to do it in a way that you can defend what you did to Jesus Christ on Judgment Day. And that's why I tell people, whatever decision... I've had sometimes some very heated discussions with people who are Christians about certain things they did or did not vote about. And ultimately, after I appeal to the Scriptures and what they teach, I will say, make sure you're comfortable defending that vote on Judgment Day because you will be held accountable as I will. And so that's the question. But can we expose the unfruitful works of darkness without getting involved in politics? Absolutely. And I, I don't think the church needs politics one iota. And we shouldn't look to politics to advance the cause of Christ. Politics can create an environment that's more conducive for that. You know, Paul prayed that the government may let us alone, that we have a peaceable life, and we can do the work of God. We just don't want government interfering with us spreading the gospel. But we'll never use the tools of men, the carnal tools of men, to advance the cause of Christ. But we can exercise our liberties, our rights. Remember, Paul, on several occasions, had certain rights as a Roman citizen. And he exercised those rights in a way that he thought was consistent with God's will. So we certainly have an example of that in the Scriptures. Here's the second question. How should we react to discrimination against Christians who are trying to defend the truth? For example, at work, we were expected to applaud homosexuality. Uh, I think that's a great question. I think it's going to come up. Uh, I would try to support those folks. I would jump into the fray uh, and, and, and hold up their hands. And, and that's going to mean maybe that you become the target. It means that you may suffer some kind of setback or persecution. But I would feel very bad if I sat there knowing the truth, and here's another Christian who's defending the truth, taking all the heat. I believe the same thing he does, but I'm just going to lay low so I don't take any bullets. I don't think that's right. And, of course, Revelation 21.8 talks about uh, people who are going to hell, and one of the people it mentions is the cowardly. And that's a slap in the face, and that's a wake-up call. 
that if we're, and we talked about, if you're not willing to confess Jesus, he's not going to confess you. So the encouragement I would give you is if you see that, rush in and try to help. And again, with the same attitudes I talked about before, you know, I'm not saying just blowing people out of the water. I'm talking about with love and humility, but don't sit on the sidelines. That's been the problem. People have sat on the sidelines too long. Get involved, get engaged, show people what it's like to lovingly and humbly present what God's Word says on this topic or any other. In the realm of procreation, does nature not teach us that the intent is for male and female to do so and that it is not natural possible for any union otherwise to fulfill the plan God designed if indeed he calls some to be born as homo- homosexual as they say? Uh, that, that's well worded, and I say amen. I mean, absolutely. I think we were talking about that a while ago, that in the beginning, God made them male and female. And it's interesting, you know, sometimes people say, well, Jesus didn't weigh in on this. Well, remember, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus refers back to Genesis 2. And he quotes that as having happened, that God created them male and female, and goes on to talk about marriage and say, because God did that, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And, of course, in Genesis 1, it does talk about God saying, be fruitful and multiply. This is the design. And, in fact, in Romans 1, when we were talking about the different descriptions of homosexuality, we talked about vile passions, we talked about error. What was one of them? Against nature, which is exactly what the asker of this question is bringing out. So, yes, I think that's correct. Uh, We need to amend the U.S. Constitution to define marriage as a union of a man and a woman only, not man to man or woman to woman. There's been some effort to do that. that those efforts have failed, and I, I suspect they'll continue to fail. You know, first of all, it's a very difficult thing to get a constitutional amendment on the books. The process is so long and so laborious and so difficult. By design, you don't want your founding document to be amended all the time willy-nilly. And if you want to see what that looks like, come to the state of Alabama where we've done that so many times. And it becomes almost meaningless. It's not really, it's almost like another legislature. But um, that position certainly has been tried, whether I say that we need to or not. You know, I don't think it's going to happen, so I don't know if I would spend a lot of my time and a lot of my effort on something that I'm not sure is going to happen because of the way the country is. Uh, I'm not discouraging people from doing that, but if I have limited time and limited resources, I'm going to spend it on the Word of God and try to change the hearts of men and uh, leave the politics to the politicians. Uh, Not saying that it's wrong to get involved in those things, but I'm just saying that Uh, That is such a difficult thing that one would have to look at how much time, how much effort, and is it worth it, and what's the likelihood of success. And if the likelihood of success is little, then we might want to choose other avenues. There's never anything wrong with spending your time studying, teaching, sharing, preaching the Word of God. That's the most powerful thing you can do to change society. Uh, We've talked about that one. Talked about that one. Okay, the saddest words written in God's Word, God's inspired Word, think on your soul's condition, depart from me, I never knew you. These words, and I apologize, I'm I'm not doing a very good job reading this. These words will condemn our soul into the bottomless pit when there will be the gnashing of teeth and torment and um, something else throughout, oh, and torment throughout eternity. Uh, certainly the Bible teaches that there is hell. And the Bible teaches that those who are outside of Christ are bound for that. And yes, the Bible describes the hell 
that awaits those outside of Christ as a place of eternal torment, of gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a terrible place. Nobody wants to go there. And that's all the more reason why we need to talk about this and talk about the entirety of God's will and the gospel. Uh, God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And notwithstanding what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13-14, He was describing how men will exercise their free will, how men will choose. But God wants everybody to choose the right way, which is His way. And we ought to be the same way. I don't want anybody to go to hell. We ought to feel that way. And do everything in your power to prevent people. And what's the greatest power we have to prevent people from going to hell? is to spread the Word of God. That's why, again, I want to emphasize that's what the focus is. I know there's concern about politics. I know there's concern about the laws of the land. You know, I'll tell you my own personal story. For a little while, I flirted with the idea of politics and getting involved in politics. And I don't think there's anything wrong with getting involved in politics. But for me, I just found that what I'm doing here was the most powerful thing that I could do to try to advance the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean it's mutually exclusive. I'm not saying either you do this or you do that. People can do both. But the most powerful way to impact the hearts and souls of men is with the Word of God. There's just hands down. There's no argument to that. Now, we have to have leaders, and we need good leaders, and we need people who are in the body of Christ leading. Erastus was the city treasurer, so he was both a Christian and a politician. It can be done. But I'm saying if i got to focus on something, I'm going to focus on the Word of God. Because ultimately, I'm not about making a paradise here. I'm about preparing people for the paradise in the hereafter. I think that... Oh, wait, here's one. I'm sorry. A common theme concerning homosexuality is that they were born that way and there's nothing they can or should do to change. How do we refute uh, this issue? I think there's several things we can say. First of all, as we said, the science has not proven that that is the case. Uh, the Scriptures teach, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, that a person can change because there were people in Corinth who had been homosexuals who were described as such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified. So these are people that had been homosexuals, but changed and were no longer homosexuals. So we know that's true. But as several people have said here, and I think it's very true, even if you were to show that somebody has a genetic predisposition to homosexuality, that does not mean that they cannot control themselves. That does not mean that they cannot conform their conduct to the Word of God. I have a genetic predisposition. I have a genetic predisposition to heterosexual sex. Before I was married, notwithstanding that predisposition, I had absolutely no right to act upon that. And I had every capability to control that. God demands it. God expects it. Now that I'm in a married relationship, I can only do that with one woman. Anybody else, that's a violation of God's law, and I can prevent that. I don't have to behave that way. And if I do behave that way, I will lose my soul. So there are all kinds of things. I told you I have certain... Uh, uh, character traits and personalities that will lend themselves to certain sins more than others. I suffer from sins of the lips, as you might have figured out. I like to talk. And in the multitude of words, as the Proverbs writer says, sin is not lacking. The more you talk, the more likely sin is to come out your mouth. That's something I've got to worry about. But I can control it. Nobody's going to come on Judgment Day and say, well, i got this predisposition, i got that predisposition, and Jesus is going to say, you had everything at your disposal to control that, and you were expected to control that. And don't tell me otherwise, because I created you. I know what you can and cannot do. And I didn't put anything on you that was impossible. I think there's one more. 
If they rule that marriage cannot be limited to just one man and one woman, what will stop a slippery slope? Uh, there are men who would want to marry more than one woman. How can they say that polygamy is wrong, but homosexual marriage is right? I think that's an excellent point. Uh, once you start to break down those divisions, it will raise the question, well, why stop there? And it's going to be very hard to defend that. It's almost like institutionalism. When you have that first departure, then there's no logical breaking point. There's no logical stopping point. Now, somebody says, oh, you're being alarmist and all this and that. But I'm telling you, whenever these issues come up, people look at that and say, okay, if we can go that far, why can't we go this far? And it's all about liberty, right? If you have the right to do that, why don't I have the right to do this? And there are people already making that argument. So I think it's an excellent point. And what keeps them from doing that? It'll just be how far uh, men go down the path of ungodliness and immorality and wickedness. And unfortunately, we see in our society, we're going pretty far. So I don't think there is any logical stopping point. It may take a little while. It may not happen overnight. But once you open that door, how can you tell somebody, okay, liberty for these folks, but not liberty for you? Wait a minute. You're discriminating. You said you're against discrimination. So I want to do this. I should have the right to do it. It's a pretty good argument. Those are all the questions, folks. Uh, appreciate your time, your attention. Uh, if you want to continue to talk about any of these things, I'll be around for a while before I hit the road for Birmingham. But thank you for being so interested in this. And do take these things and talk to other people. Talk to your friends, your co-workers, other church members. If you're visiting from a congregation that doesn't talk about these things, ask your preacher to uh, present what the Word of God is on this. We don't hear enough lessons about these sorts of things. It's not the question of too little or too much. It's the question of too little. Preach the Word of God, the whole counsel of God. Thank you.